Welcome to the Organized Success Podcast brought to you by LiveBinders. In this episode, Linda Hool and I explore the highly charged topic of fake news and the subtle way in which the internet neutralizes our critical ability to distinguish truth from lies. We invited longtime LiveBinders curator Susan Brooks Young to talk about her popular digital binder, Truth Matters, Digital Literacy in the Post-Truth Era. I am excited to share this fascinating conversation with you. At the very least, you'll be able to appreciate the power of critical thinking. Please welcome Susan Brooks Young. introduce everybody. Andrew Lapp is here as he's helping us with our audio and video. And then Linda Houle, introducing you to Susan. She's Hi, a longtime user of LiveBinders and she helps me with the podcasts um, because she's got this you know, former librarian out of Illinois. She uh, gives me the education perspective that I lack. So Susan Brooks-Young, can you introduce yourselves and tell us who you, what you do? I originally was a classroom teacher for a number of years every grade from pre-K through eight. I was also a site level administrator, uh, a principal, an assistant principal, a technology integration specialist at one point in time. And I, uh, several years ago, moved to a farm on an island in pretty much the middle of nowhere. And at that point, because the principal was not willing to give up his job at the one school with 200 kids, I started doing what I'm doing now, which is working with educators both around the country and also internationally on a variety of different topics that are related to effective, thoughtful use of technology as a tool for teaching and learning. I live in Bremerton, Washington now, so I'm off the farm, but um, still doing what I'm doing and uh, also have written a lot of books and done some other things and actually met you initially, and I don't know if you know this or not, but it was because I was writing an article for today's Catholic Teacher Magazine way back in the day. Oh, and did we meet virtually? We did, we met via email. I was writing an article about tools for curating resources oh, that's for teachers. It's jogging anyway. my memory now. Right, and Live Binders had just come out, and I was so excited because it was something that was better than list, uh, some kind of a listly kind of thing or right, a digo right. kind of thing. Um, and I, I always give when I when I do workshops and things, I always online agendas, and the lists of resources were just getting so long that first I went to digo. And that was still too much a lot of times. Yeah, so I, I found Live Binders and I'm like, whoa, this is awesome. Now I can have the best of both worlds. And that was when I got in touch with you. Yeah, great. I'm going to go find that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So let's, we're going to talk about your truth matters. So Linda, should we let you uh, open up her binder? All right. Okay. Um, a couple weeks ago, I found well, I had found your binder before. I had it in my uh, awesome binder shelf, and because it's so relevant to me, um, back in around 2000, I started a 
lesson plan with my sixth graders with the Burmese Mountain Dog. And uh, every year at the beginning of their research project, I had them in the computer lab, which we put in about 97, I think it was, and had them you know, research this dog. And when it was all done and over, I would say, hey guys, you've been had. This is why you have to really think about what you find online. And today's world, oh my gosh, you know, this many years later. So when I found your binder full of resources, I felt that it needed to be highlighted. I did a video review of your binder because I wanted to highlight it as something that should be seen. Um, and I just liked all the areas that you covered from books, reports with Pew in particular, um, the understanding numbers. And this is, to me, the content is not just relevant to our kids. It's relevant to everybody because everybody is being taken in by so much misinformation. And there was just so much here that could be pulled into a lesson by anybody, could be referred to by anybody. Um, and I just felt it was necessary to highlight it. Um, I loved all the activities which gave people, you know, options of what to pull on. And um, in a comment I made on Facebook to my friends is said, this is something for any of us to look at. And why don't you try some of these activities? They're just not for the kids. So I just felt that uh, this is just an awesome binder that everybody should take a gander at. Um, and so that's why I highlighted it and why I wanted to bring this one into our discussion. Wow, that's really impressive. Great, thank you so very much. It really makes me really happy to know that something I've really put my heart into has had that much impact already. I really appreciate that. I think it's had a lot of reviews before this and I hope it continues to, which leads us sort of into the question, what brought this binder about? How, how and why did you start it? Actually, I discovered very early on that one of the things I love about live binders is the fact that I can create one on the fly if I need to. And when I'm working with teachers or I am working with a class of students or I'm with community members or I'm with a parent group, whoever I'm working with, I really want to be sure that when they leave, they not only have the information that they heard and they saw and they tried out, but that they also have reference points that they can go back to. And I started actually almost accidentally by creating a live binder about digital literacy skills on the fly at a session in Dallas several years ago. And that binder ended up going from a 10 minute throw this together, make sure people have what they need to me adding a couple of collaborators to it and us really expanding upon it. And we've used it ever since as a, a basis for workshops that we present all around different aspects of digital literacy and helping teachers and students be better at what they do. 
uh, that's a long story to say, at the beginning, this binder was a tab in that binder. I added it, we, we were changing up a workshop and we like, we, we kind of have a reputation, it's Dan Morris and Ryan Imbriali and I, we kind of have a reputation for focus, focusing on a couple of different things, one of which is digital citizenship. And we mix up our workshops. We don't do the same thing every year because we do have a lot of repeat attenders. And so one year I said, you know, I, as a former English teacher, have been really concerned about what's going on with what I see online. And this was before anybody was talking about fake news or anything else. It was just, I, I was seeing that there were a lot of things being put out there in on the interwebs that just were not necessarily true and so i wanted to start addressing that as an element of good digital citizenship so this binder started off as a tab called truth matters in the other binder then it got so big that i finally said i've got to migrate this over and turn it into a binder of its own because there are just too many resources here. It's too overwhelming. And I was working on the book at the time. So I took the liberty of um, coming up with tabs that correlate with how the book is organized. And also how I organize workshops that I do just strictly on digital literacy. So when you say books, you mean the book that you're, you wrote? Yes. Okay. So you, this will kind of back up the book that you're about to print that we're going to yes. talk about. Yeah. Great. Yes. Nice. Yes. And so, uh, so this binder now actually is serving a number of purposes, use for workshops, something that teachers and their students and community members and parents are welcome to use. You're absolutely right, Linda. When I did this, I wanted to choose activities that would be appropriate, not just for students, but also for the adults in their lives. So, because so many people struggle with these skills, they can't recognize disinformation. So how on earth are they supposed to be able to help kids recognize what they're looking at? Right, so, it, goes, it goes along with something I saw yesterday, how senior citizens, of which I am, have a problem. And then in turn, the young people in another article said they're concerned about the adults that are providing the misinformation because they're not thinking about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. So, um, so that is how this binder came to be. And it is still a work in progress. You know, I feel like as far as fake news or, you know, false information, you know, we've had conspiracy theories floating about, I mean, I'm sure longer than even since before JFK was assassinated and man landed on the moon, but I'm under, I'm, I'm really interested in hearing what do you have to say about how, how misinformation has sort of changed, especially with the internet and like, what about sort of the evolution of it kind of made you want to put all of this together? Misinformation has been around for ever. As long as people have been communicating with one another, somebody has been telling a story with the purpose of either intentionally or unintentionally getting somebody to do something they might not be willing to do if they were told the truth. 
So what's changed with the internet is that now the internet provides a platform for people to communicate and to connect with other people who are like-minded in ways that they could not have done so easily in the past. And it also gives a platform to people. When, when I wrote my first book, the internet was around and people were using it, but they weren't really using it yet to publish their own books. And so if when I wanted to publish a book, I needed to find a publisher who was going to read the manuscript and who was going to say yes or no. So it went through a vetting process. Now, all I need to do is go to any one of a number of websites that would allow me to publish my own book with the click of a few buttons and get it out there on some major book selling list. And my message is out there, hasn't been edited, hasn't been vetted. It's right. just there. And I think that's what's different. Interesting. Yeah. Because yeah, they would be the ones that would fact check, right? The right. vetting process. And you're right. Somebody could publish a book and, 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 and even in this day and age, a published author means, right, they're vetted. They've been reviewed, even though their book might've come from one of these online publishing sites that, that just publish whatever. Right. And one of the things that I, I often talk about when I'm talking with folks about, well, you know, again, what's the difference? And this goes back to something that Chris Deedy discovered years ago when he was still in um, Texas. And that was one of the equalizers about word processing was that kids who had difficulty writing to the point that you could even identify what paper was theirs because it was all smudged and it had holes erased through it and it was usually pretty crinkly and you could just tell oh so and so wrote that you didn't even have to read it and you you would make a lot of judgments or a lot of teachers would about the value of something before they even read it simply by how it looked and that was also true when i was a kid and i, I think it still is standing in line at the grocery store and seeing National Enquirer and some of the other tabloid papers that were there. You know, my, when I was a kid growing up, the litmus test was if the newsprint rubs off on your fingers, it's probably garbage. <laughs> you don't get that anymore. Everything online has the same visual quality. Yeah, you can be fancy about something. Yeah, you can use better graphics or whatever. But at first glance, you can't use the cues you used to be able to use in the past. Going even beyond that, I mean, you know, every Twitter post looks the same, right? Yes, they do. And, and that means you, you have to figure out another way to judge the value because a lot of what we used in before doesn't work anymore. Mm -hmm. I'm interested to hear when you, when you're looking through you know, information on the internet, what, what was the sort of things that you came across that you found really alarming? Was it just like flat out false, like completely false information, just, you know, completely straight lies? Or was it opinions that were more like presented as facts or facts that were just sort of presented in a way that was sort of trying to push a narrative more than like the truth? What's what, and what's the difference there to you? Well, okay. At first, I think it's important to, to differentiate between, 
between misinformation and disinformation. Mm. Misinformation is something that somebody gets wrong, but it's not intentional. Mm. And a lot of times things get passed around. And I, this goes back to the, the, the article that Linda referenced. A lot of senior citizens who grew up believing that if something made it into print, chances were it was true. A lot of them pass things around that are dead wrong, but they're not doing it on purpose. They think it's really true. So that is an example of misinformation. Mm -hmm. Disinformation, on the other hand, is flat out not true, and it was created and distributed to lead people astray, period. There's no, nothing redeeming about it at all. And given that definition, it's possible to take something that was originally disinformation that was created by somebody on a troll farm in Eastern Europe that was designed out of whole cloth and meant to confuse and, and mislead people. And it gets to your great aunt's email box somehow and she reads it and goes, oh my gosh, that's horrible. And then immediately forwards it to everybody she knows. What she has done is misinformation because she didn't really mean to hurt people. She, was, she thought she was passing along accurate information. Right. But what she passed along was disinformation. And what about, I mean, it, it's one thing to see things that are totally just complete lies that get mm -hmm. spread around because, you know, um, you know, they're, they're presented to people who are sort of susceptible to that. Yep. And then I think there's, there's another angle to it too, where you have certain media outlets that will, will take things that are, you know, I'm interested to see like where, where someone like, um, or where a group like, I don't want to get too, you know, political or too partisan <laughs> here, but where, uh, I'm trying to think of like, like an outlet, like, like OAN, I don't, you know, they, they were in the news sort of recently yes. where an outlet that's, you know, you know, the based here in America, they're not necessarily propped up by some foreign adversary or something, but they have an agenda. And what they'll do is they'll take sort of bits and pieces of real information to sort of weave a narrative that is very one-sided and, and how do you sort of counter that kind of thing? Right. Well, okay. And that's where you get into talking with folks about what's often called counter knowledge, but it's actually kind of the basis of conspiracy theories or pseudoscience or pseudo history, like Holocaust deniers. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, that's pseudo history. And, and that's what's so insidious about it is because there will be grains of truth. And so it's not enough to say to someone, you need to do your research and you need to look and see if you can find facts that back this up, because of course they will find a few that do. Right. So what they need to be able to do then is they need, in addition to doing some research, they need to use some critical thinking skills and they need to be able to look at a conspiracy theater theory and they need to be able then to go through that. And there's actually a set of steps that I am not going to try to say off the top of my head right now, but they are actually in a lesson plan that I designed for the book that's available online. And I, 
if the book is not already mentioned in the Live Binder, it will be because it was released just a couple of days ago. But it's an actual, there's an actual series of like five questions that you can ask about something like what you're talking about to work through and say, okay, this is likely to be true, or this is not probably the truth based mm -hmm. upon the answers to these questions. Right. How is the education community, because that's where you mostly share this, are they coming to you and asking you for these workshops and conferences and books? Or are you having to keep sharing this knowledge with them that we really need to have this in, in your schools, that we really need to educate you know, this population? Like, is there a demand for it? Are people really aware of it? Or are you finding that you have to um, it, it's both. Um, initially, I was really having to get out there and pitch it because people were saying, yeah, 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 right, whatever. Mm -hmm. Now more people recognize the need and it is taking fewer, less of my time saying, you know, yeah, you need to be thinking about this and more, let's see when I could talk to your folks. Great. So yeah, so that, that really is very heartening. Because at, at first, the, the, the first time I pitched this idea to a conference manager, she accepted it more because she knew me than because she believed it was really important. Mm -hmm. Well, that's how we start, right? Yep. Yep. And then the other thing I was going to say was, you know, you mentioned the five steps, which you weren't going to repeat because they're very detailed and you have them in your book. I mean, I think having specific steps for those of us who need a way to think about things, especially if we don't have the time to really do the research, like are there, do you go about giving, you know, quick cue, you know, cues for people to use so that they know, well, I really got to, okay, clearly I need to investigate further. Let me not take this too seriously right now. Cause that's mm -hmm. what you want, right? You want them to at least not just swallow up, but to take a few steps back, right? There, you know, there are right. actual cues that we can learn. Right. Yeah. And, and basically what I do now, the work I do is based, based originally on work by Daniel Levitin. He wrote a book called Weaponized Lies. And he, it, it was a book that he wrote to be used as a supplemental text for a class he was teaching at a university. It's very readable. It's very well organized. And it really struck me as being something that every K-12 teacher mm. needed to be aware of. But the way it was packaged was something that they might not just necessarily pick up on their own. So I contacted him and said, I really think that this needs to be, there needs to be a subsequent volume that talks to K-12 teachers. And he said, I agree. I don't have time. Do whatever you want with it. It's yours. Yeah. And I got that in writing. Awesome. <laughs> so, so that's where I get the structure of understanding numbers and understanding works because it is such a big thing and it is so confusing for people. And I'm sorry, but cute little acronyms, they might work for 30 seconds, but it's sort of uh, teachers need more meat. Mm -hmm. than that. So I use the understanding numbers and understanding words to structure pretty much everything I do around this topic. 
And I concentrate, there's five areas in understanding numbers, there's five areas in understanding words, and that's true in the binder, that's true in the book, it's true in workshops and talks and, and whatever I do. So I try to, to build in the consistency there and then give people access to the binder. The website for the book is free. Anybody can access it. Anybody can access the activities. If they buy the book, awesome. If they don't buy the book, they're gonna miss all the background stuff, but they could take what's on the website and they could use those lesson plans and, the, and that would be fine. And I'm okay with that. My publisher is okay with that because we both feel that it's more important to get this information out and get people applying it appropriately than it is to try to hide it behind a paywall. Yeah. Yeah. Do, do news sites help you or hurt you? Because, you know, they're trying to get eyeballs. You know, I understand why news sites are doing what they're doing. And I really appreciate that during the pandemic, a lot of the major publications that are still accessible have taken things that normally would be behind their paywall and have made them free. So I subscribe to Washington Post, for example, mm -hmm. and everything they publish about COVID-19 is available for free right now. And I think that's awesome. But I also believe that newspapers are the bedrock of a society and a free press. And I'm lucky in that I live in a community here in Bremerton that still has its own local, local newspaper, the Kitsap Sun. Many communities no longer do. Mm -hmm. I spent 10 years in a community that did not have a local daily paper anymore. And it's not something I recommend. So I understand that as much as I would love for all their stuff to be free, I subscribe to their digital edition of the paper because somebody's got to pay their salaries. Mm -hmm. Somebody's got to pay the rent for the physical building they've got to have. So they publish the paper paper for the people who want or need that. And so I, I think that while it would be lovely to live in a world of free news, that we have to bite the bullet and we need to pay for it so that we still have it. Yeah. And while we're on the subject of like newspapers and more traditional news outlets, I, I'm really interested in, in hearing what you have to say about skepticism that people have regarding news that they might not apply to other sources. Earlier, Susan, you mentioned like echo chambers. Yep. Um, and I've, I've had, Tina mentioned, I have like kind of a background in journalism. I've spent some time like in like more of these echo chambers that I'd really care to. By the way, I don't know what an echo chamber <laughs> is, if you can... Sorry. Right. Uh, Susan, you should probably take that one. Oh, okay. Well, what happens is when people get sources of news and you start talking to them about where they get their news, when they start to name things, you'll soon find out that most often they get their news from one or two sources. So it's one newspaper or it's one television network or it's one radio station. And it tends to be an outlet that presents information from the same bias that the consumer had. So if, if a person tends to be uh, very conservative, they will tend to only get news from conservative outlets. Same is true for people who tend to be more liberal. They will tend to only get their information from liberal leaning outlets. 
And the problem with that is confirmation bias. If the only thing you ever get is information confirming what you already to believe to be true, then if you're getting misinformation or disinformation, you don't know because you've got no other experience to rely on. Yeah, everybody it, is saying it, right? That, that right, idea. Right, but all they but they just keep saying the same thing over and over again, which only convinces you that you really are right and everybody else is wrong. I'm I'm interested in hearing how do you how do you sort of because I, I notice people in these sort of echo chambers, mm -hmm. what they'll do is they'll they'll have they'll have a lot of skepticism, you know, the, the kind of skepticism that you might even like them to have, mm -hmm. but they they apply it very selectively. Yeah. Yeah. How do you deal with that? Well, I have a lesson plan for that. Yeah, actually, there, there, there is, with students, uh, they're still malleable. Mm. And so it's important to catch them when they're in upper elementary and middle school and start to say to them, you guys, you can't rely on, on just one thing. And explain to them also how the algorithms work online because people don't realize that like buttons mean more than telling whoever posted something that you just read that you appreciate what they posted. That also is telling the platform that you're using, oh, Susan's friend posted a recipe that has 14 kinds of chocolate in it, and she liked it. That means Susan likes recipes with chocolate. Mm. Let's give her more. Ah, uh, yeah. Okay? And so pretty soon... I could end up with the impression that in the United States, most people have given up all desserts except those that involve chocolate, because that's all I'm seeing anymore. And that's very simplistic, but that's kind of how it works. And so I never, when I have like a, a news app that asks me at the end of a story whether or not I'd like it, I liked it, I don't click anything because I don't want that app or whatever to start funneling me down rabbit holes. It's already going to do it because I click on some titles and I don't click on others. You know, I was thinking when you mentioned echo chambers that uh, it's been interesting many times when I've done a search and then my friend has done the same search, we come up with two different results. And that was something that has really grown as particularly a certain search engine follows your interest as it gives you the information you think you're looking for it might be in line with what they found you've been clicking on along the way. Indeed, that is very true. And so sometimes I will use two or three different browsers. It's not, it's not a, a complete fix to the problem, but I'll use Google or I'll use Firefox or whatever but use different browsers because you will get different results depending upon what that browser's algorithm has picked up about you. And I'm glad you brought that up, Linda. I mean, it should be constantly reinforced at every level of their academic journey, certainly. It should. And, and the other thing, too, is a lot of people don't realize that they need to start modeling these skills when kids are in kindergarten mm -hmm. and yeah. something they that they just need to grow up with thinking about obviously at different levels you're not going to have 
five-year-olds exploring the ins and outs of conspiracy theories, but but there are things you can start modeling for them and teaching them all along so that by the time they hit upper elementary and middle school, they're ready to really start doing some serious digging into things. And we all know how the younger kids are always excited to go to the library and the opportunities. So it's while that excitement exists, you really need to reach them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I like that model of, you know, giving them the game, if you will, of figuring out what's real, and what's not real, or how to uh, yeah. approach a piece of media and getting mm -hmm. them to develop those critical thinking skills, which is a critical thinking skill. That's a requirement, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, I love your title, this digital literacy in the post-truth era. That's, that's quite a statement. I don't know if you want to reflect on that. And I love your image on that introduction tab of the, the picture of the New York Post uh, <laughs> <laughs> label. It, it just says it right there. It's very interesting. Sure. Yeah. I was really interested in asking you about whether or not you get any pushback, you know, because I know you, you've gone around, you've done conferences and workshops on all this kind of stuff. I wonder if you ever get pushback from people who sort of already have, you know, who might be involved in one of those echo chambers we were talking about earlier. Actually, yeah, I do. Um, not, not, not terribly often because people kind of know who I am. And, and uh -huh. I often will start off sessions saying, look, um, you know, there, not every story has two sides. That's where mm -hmm. I'm coming from. So sometimes it, it's important. And in fact, it, it's a whole riff on, I don't call it fake news because that softens it, that sugarcoats it. Mm. It's lies. So call it what it is hmm. and don't try to pretend that every, every story has two sides because, oh wait, they don't. Sometimes there's the truth and there's a lie and that's just the way it is. And um, you can fact check and you can determine what that is. And we have sort of a social contract that says when you've got a fact checker like PolitiFact, for example, that has a good reputation, that's run by a reliable, trustworthy agency, then by golly, until you can actually definitively prove that what they're saying is not true, I'm going to believe it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I feel like that's, that almost hits on another type of, so for example, if you have a panel of experts on CNN, and, and one of those experts is um, someone who, they may be like a professor at, at some university somewheres, but they have some very radical idea about you know, uh, national politics or something like that. Right. Okay. And that what, what, what we're getting into there is that whole area under understanding words about what constitutes an expert. First mm -hmm. off, folks, I would argue that folks who are talking on CNN are pundits. I, want, I would want to know what qualifies them as being an expert because teaching at a university does not necessarily qualify you as an expert in the topic on which you are opining. So I think that a real disservice is all the cable networks, all of them, bringing people on, having them pontificate about topics on which they may or may not have expertise. And being an expert in one area does not make you an expert in another. So even, even a, a bona fide expert 
can give opinions about something outside their field of expertise and, and we should not be paying any attention to it at all because they're not experts there. The man who initially uh, auditioned the Beatles for Decca Records turned them down flat saying that guitar bands were going out and that they would never be a success. Right, right. And he was an expert in his field. That was his job was to pick the newest, latest, greatest band and he blew it. So being called an expert and $3.50 will get you a small coffee at Starbucks. <laughs> they have a right to their opinion, but <laughs> right. yeah, whatever. And yeah. what you just did there, I'm sorry, Linda, you go ahead. I was just going to say, yeah, they have their, the right to their opinion, but, and we can hear it. It's the people that say they should shut up and just go entertain, which I sometimes find disturbing because everybody has a right to their opinion. And just like I could say right now what I think, that's my option to do it too. So it's sort of a double-edged sword there. Yeah. Yeah, but thinking it doesn't make it true. Right. Right. And what you did just a minute ago, where you, you, you posed the hypothetical question, well, what makes them an expert? I feel like that's a really effective tool when you're trying to combat this sort of thinking. It, is more of like asking people to explain their beliefs sort of helps to unravel it. Mm -hmm. But I'm interested in, in how, like, how do you kind of take that to like more of an educational place? Because as an educator, your job is, is to, is to speak, right? You're sort of there to not pontificate, but kind of you're the, you're the authority figure. And so I just think it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting spot to be in. Mm -hmm. It is, it is. But by the same token, you know, I, I, I have areas of expertise. I am a trained educator. I know how to teach. I've got degrees and certi certifications and a trail of work that makes me an expert in certain fields of education, one of which is media literacy. If I start talking about algebra or geometry, you need to not believe what I say because... I am not a mathematician. I can make stuff up that sounds pretty good, but it won't be true. Yeah. In such an interesting area too, because I feel like, you know, math, I mean, math doesn't change that much year to year, but it seems especially like just in the, in the, in this most recent decade, you know, perhaps digital literacy, the, the principles behind it may not have changed, but like the application of it, how much people are aware of it and its importance has probably changed a lot. Yeah, it, it does. It do and ble being on the bleeding edge is sometimes really uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. But somebody needs to be there. Let alone the explosion of social media. Right. <laughs> exactly. You know, I mean, I, I, gosh, look at Facebook. My gosh, I don't, those guys didn't mean to create what they created. They had no idea. And that, and that gets into the whole thing. I also do a lot of work in... Um, artificial intelligence. And, and it's the whole idea that somewhere along the line, we stopped teaching about ethics mm -hmm. and we stopped teaching about unanticipated consequences. And we stopped teaching about thinking, remembering that just because you can doesn't mean you should. Mm -hmm. And whether you're talking about AI or you're talking about media literacy 
or you're talking about the possibilities of social media, instead of going, oh, shiny, you can have a certain element of that, but it's also important to stop and say, you know, what might be the consequences of the decisions I'm making now? Is this something I really want to do? Is this, how is this going to be a benefit? What could be the possible drawbacks? We do way too, we, we do way too much forging ahead because it's cool. And then having to figure out what are we going to do now that that horse is out of the barn? Yeah. Yeah. Then we do trying to be a little bit more thoughtful ahead of time. And that doesn't mean don't innovate. It just means maybe be a little more ethical about it. I think you could say that about just you as a person, as a human being, as you approach relationships and your jobs, your careers, everything. Yep. Like, where do you, how do you, what would you label that as? What is, it's, I don't even think when we were growing up that existed, that kind of a course. Uh, is it social study, studies? Is it? Well, I, it's, I, it's how to be a, a person, how to be a respectable citizen, not just digital citizen, but. I think there was more agreement, maybe. Um, just because it, it, there was, there was more of an agreement about a social contract, I think, when we were growing up than there is now. And there, there was a shift in the eighties where the locus of, of our focus kind of shifted from what's good for the community and good for society to what's good for me. Yeah. And I think, I, I think think that if we've learned nothing else recently, we need to shift back to what's good for community. So Susan, this was a great conversation about truth and what oh, truth, good. truth means and, and the book that you have coming out, it is out right now? Is that what I heard? It or? came out on the 20th of this month. So where can we find it? You can find it. I have a website that's called medialiteracytoday.net. And if you go to the first page of that, the homepage has a link to the book. It's, um, the title is just horrible, but it's called The Media Savvy Middle School Classroom, Strategies for Teaching Against Disinformation. Strategies for Teaching... Great. Against disinformation. It's a British publisher. So the okay. title is a little British. Okay. <laughs> Love it. Love yeah. it. Yeah. But yeah, so it just it was just released. And even though it's um really targets middle school, it's something that all teachers would benefit from. And it also is something where since most kids don't have these skills, you could scale it up or you could scale it down and it would be fine for upper elementary and for high school. All right, everyone, we'll have a good weekend. Hey, you too, and thanks again. And do let me know if you get up to this area. I will, I definitely will. All right, have a good weekend, guys. Thanks, you too, Andrew, take care. Take care. Bye, Linda, it was great Bye. meeting you.